0: How are we? out oh, up oh, oh. hello everybody welcome to the adequately informed podcast for March 2nd 2020 this is episode 20 hey oh we made it we're getting there we're we're getting up there um Almost there. My, my name's Joe Hicks and mine's
1: Evan Kelly and Evan what are we here to do today Well, Joe, we're going to talk about some of our most prized possessions, our ideas, our minds. We're going to let our minds exercise on the jump rope of discourse, always making sure that we are in the gym of good faith and making sure that we hydrate with adequately informed information.
0: Yeah, and we realize that we are only human we don't know everything. We do not sit upon the ivory tower where we know all. We or we it.
1: don't. We don't do the bench press of ivory tower. You got to keep keep my metaphor going. I, I that, yeah. Uh, uh,
0: anyway, <laughs> 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 we realize that. Uh, Perspectives other than our own are valid, and that we don't know everything, and that we're going to be wrong a lot. Isn't that right, Evan?
1: Yes, me especially. I am incompetent. Oh, damn.
0: Well, (laughs) anyway, Evan, what do you want to talk about this week?
1: Well, Joe, this week I want to talk about a movie that I saw and. Uh, hopefully draw a couple of larger parallels i know that we've got a big big segment to get to so we're yes. gonna gonna try to keep it uh, humming along but yesterday i saw the invisible man the uh, quasi remake of the 1933 horror film starring claude rains about a man who is well invisible and I absolutely love the 1933 film I've seen it it's one of those classic horror movies um and I think it's really well executed from a craft standpoint and also very thought-provoking and one of the things that really shocked me about it watching it for the first time was how there's really not all that many horror tropes present it's marketed as a horror movie it's in the horror canon but really to me it's more of a proto-science fiction film because the crux of the man becoming invisible is that he's a chemist and he invents a solution that will make him invisible but also has detrimental effects that essentially drive him mad and so it's a really interesting examination of how sometimes science can go too far, and the unintended consequences of chemical experimentation. Remember, 1933 is still less than two decades removed from the First World War, in which we saw mustard gas and other chemical weapons come into the forefront. So people at the time were really trying to understand this balance between Progress in medical ethics, and I think that it plays out in a really riveting way in the original Invisible Man that still made me appreciate it even watching it. I saw it probably in 2018 or 2019, but you know, in in a modern context, it still holds up. So, flash forward to this year, 2020, Lee L has remade the Invisible Man, and it bears almost no resemblance to that original film. I guess I should mention that both are based on a book by H.G. Wells, but I haven't read the book and I'm, that's not what this conversation is about. Anyway, this one, this uh, new movie, I enjoyed it. I'll say upfront, I thought it was a good movie. Well done. And it is definitely more of a straightforward horror with some action thriller tendencies than... The original, And I want to try to make this spoiler free so that people don't have to skip over it, but uh, the, maybe the biggest spoiler that I'll give is that the mechanism for the Invisible Man's invisibility is more based in technology than chemistry, and the central conflict of the film is that it hardly focuses on the Invisible Man at all, but rather on his efforts to stalk and manipulate his... Ex-wife, played by Elizabeth Moss, who is fantastic in this movie. She's always great, um, but in this movie especially, she really nails the role. And so, it's not at all about the scientific ethics anymore. the The creation of the technology is sort of taken for granted. So instead, we're given the entire run of the film to explore these concepts of. Emotional manipulation Spousal abuse Interpersonal misogyny And gaslighting Which have come to the forefront They've always existed, believe me I'm, I'm well aware of that But they have been given a more prominent place In the cultural discourse Following the Me Too movement So They've I'm well, I'm on the record As really hating remakes And not standing by them but I think that this is an interesting case study on when remakes go right. This wasn't a cash grab. It wasn't an attempt to capitalize on the nostalgia factor of The Invisible Man. I don't think anyone is really out there standing that movie from 1933. Um, instead, it's taking a base concept and giving it a complete overhaul to make it relevant to our modern times and that i think is probably the best case scenario and i really enjoyed the film
0: this feels uh reminiscent of the uh you know you wouldn't make blazing saddles today kind of conversation because it wouldn't be relevant like if you just Mm -hmm. did a straight remake uh you know from what you're saying of the invisible man like nobody like it wouldn't have the same context that everybody watching it in 1933 would have had for the you know the fears of the science and all this kind of stuff.
1: So, yeah, we have that today, but it takes a, a different flavor. I'm thinking of like an Ex Machina, where yeah. it's less about... I, I feel like the chemical nature of the original Invisible Man is really important, whereas things are more technologically driven now, which thankfully is accounted for in the updated version.
0: Yeah, so it's... Um, it's I do like this idea of the uh, like a th- as a thought experiment of taking old movies and turning, you know, putting them into a new genre. Like what mm-hmm. if you made like Back to the Future, but a rom-com <laughs> like, hmm, that would be an interesting art experiment. But anyway, um, so who, who are the romantic partners, Marty and Doc? <sighs> You see that's that's the big trouble because that those are the main characters, but I mean uh, you know, I know you wanna, just
1: threw this out there right now. I don't expect you to have this the uh, a treatment written, but I mean i
0: I don't know if I would think I was going for a um you know a uh, a gender queer you know <laughs> yeah, yeah. Com, but uh there could be a version what what if it was uh, Marty and
1: docket no. <laughs> <laughs> Docket, yeah, but that's what that, they have to call that character the whole time. They have to go, yeah. With that and it's like really horribly clunky again. name,
0: yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Or or just Doc. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that that we're we're uh, we're starting a new YouTube channel, Evan. It's called um, I don't have a name for yet yet, but we're just gonna remake movies, but under a new genre and it called genre bender yeah genre bender and also we can only do things that are in the public domain so it has to be
1: real old so it's a wonderful life doa uh his girl friday um all of the ed wood and uh william castle movies yeah okay
0: all right, so we're gonna take "It's a Wonderful Life" and turn it into a psychological thriller.
1: Oh my gosh! It's I well. Think have you ever it could seen? Work. I think it could, and actually, you saying that reminds me. Have you seen that uh, video? And, and I think this is kind of a subgenre where you re-edit the trailers of movies to change oh, yeah. the, I the think perceived I've seen genre. It before. Yeah, yeah, like where yeah. Elf is re-edited as a psychological thriller about a man-child who is stalking this family and it's not whimsical at all
0: (laughs) i think a lot of uh kind of whimsical comedies can be done into that because i've also seen that for mr bean okay Uh, yeah a a psychological recut of a bunch of mr bean into yeah psychological thriller I think it, it's really that, easy to do because it's because if it's outside of the context of comedy, then it's really dark and just weird.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So uh, watch out for so, our yeah. new project where we uh, produce full feature length movies.
1: I'm excited for it. Just to sum up Invisible Man. It's good. It stands on its own from the original. Um, I have some other. I, I, I had some issues with it. Um Just basically in terms of sometimes they had to gloss over some things to keep the narrative going. But overall, solid movie. And the point of this wasn't a a deep uh, film criticism, but more of a comparative analysis and then exploration of the right way to refresh a pre-sold property.
0: You could call it a light preponderance.
1: Okay. I don't know. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Joe, what do you want to talk about?
0: Oh, I want to talk about a a subject that is very near and dear to me, which is sleep. Um, which is kind of ironic for me today because in order to record today, I had to get less sleep than I normally do. Um, but for me sleep has been a battle for like the last, I don't know, since I ever really, since I got into college, Because as soon as the structure of the day went away, I was just like, oh, man, I'll just sleep whatever. And that ain't great. Um, If you've ever heard, you know, any advice about sleep, they say, do it regularly. Make sure you're getting enough time. Do this, do that, frippity-flop-flop-flop. But luckily enough, I was able to get a job out of college that catered to my inability to be awake during the day where I work at nights, and I manage truck drivers at night. And the idea of getting enough sleep is a daily occurrence in this industry. When you have to be awake at night, you start to get really familiar with how sleep works. Like when you're awake during the day and have kind of a normal schedule, sleep is almost kind of like an afterthought where, you know, you just kind of do it. You know, it's like, oh, it's 10 p.m. I go to sleep now and then because I'm tired and then I wake up in the morning because I have to go to work and whatever. But when you are awake during the night, and have to sleep during the day at some point, you have to intentionally do that. It just doesn't happen. You have to choose when you're going to sleep and when you're going to wake up. And you have to do it deliberately. And it's very interesting to see because I have definitely had a number of people who I've worked with where... They absolutely cannot make it work like they have, uh, you know, a family or stuff going on in their lives. And they they're like, I was only able to sleep two hours today. Mm. And let me tell you, everybody, you do not function on two hours of sleep. (laughs) Like you may be able to get up, move around and do things, but you are not anywhere close to your mental peak on two hours of sleep. And you're really not on four hours of sleep either. Um, I have somehow managed, mangled my life together to where I get at least eight hours of sleep at night. And I got to say, I couldn't do it any other way. Because when I'm sleep deprived, I, I am just cranky. I am not at anywhere close to my mental peak. I'm not having as great a thought. I, I just don't see how people do it where they only sleep, you know, four or five hours a night. And, you know, I don't know if I have a grander point to all of this, but sleep is just so important and it seems so elusive. Like we don't place a whole lot of value on it as a society um you know like a while back Steve Harvey was saying like man if you're if you're getting eight hours of sleep at night then you're not really trying hard to make it in this world or some shit like that and I don't believe in that whatsoever even though it's tempting to think that Oh, yeah, if I just stay up real late, then I can do a whole lot more things. But then the things that you do aren't going to be nearly as great. But then also on the third hand, you know, if if work is one of those things and you don't care too much about how well you do at work, I guess you could push that off. But I don't know sleep. It's it's very important. And it's something that I've actually had to, like, figure out in life. And it hasn't just been a given. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. Well, my first uh, comment is that Steve Harvey is a jackass. I mean, uh, how, how he has become successful is beyond me. He doesn't seem to understand anything. He believes that stuttering can be cured in 15 minutes. And, you know, he holds all of these really just stupid views. He's an idiot. Uh, (laughs) So that's, that's what I think about Steve Harvey, guys. Yeah. and I, I'm, I'm more like Joe though, I, I need to get sleep. I, I think probably my floor is about six hours, but I'm really comfortable at seven hours and then eight is a good peak, but I I, I can fudge it a little bit, not much. Um, and actually, I think what's interesting though is that even though Steve Harvey is a dumbass, he might not actually need eight hours of sleep because What we're finding out is that studies are coming out saying that the amount of sleep that you need on a given night varies from person to person, and there's a strong genetic component to it. I I read a a little write-up recently of a study they were doing with a father and son who can basically survive on one hour of sleep a night and Mm -hmm. they don't show any cognitive decline and they're trying to study these men's brains to see how they're able to do that and i think it's you know i think that's quite a competitive advantage if you don't need as much sleep based on how your body operates but it's really sort of out of your control and i don't believe that we should Shame people or say that they're not working hard just for getting the amount of sleep that their body needs. I mean, if you've ever been underrested or had to deal with someone in any sort of professional or work context when they're underrested, it's just a pain in the ass to try to deal with people who aren't functioning properly because of their lack of sleep. So my takeaway on it is uh, fuck Steve Harvey but some people can get by with less uh, with fewer hours of sleep, but either way, just listen to your own body and respect people's divergent sleep needs.
0: yeah, get get what you need. Um, I also tried to live my life to not needing coffee on a day to day basis to be awake. Like I'll have it, but it's not like the Main yeah, I'm never like oh I I'm not the same until I get my coffee, Um but I I am a sleepy boy, so I need <laughs> a lot of sleep, and I believe that <laughs> I don't know because it seems like a lot of the science on the sleep is still just very tentative and they don't fully know everything, but if I, I I have a feeling that I would you know my health would be worse and I would not have nearly as much mental ability if I drastically cut down on my sleep
1: mm-hmm. even
0: though it seems like at every point uh societal pressures or internal pressures want me to do that
1: yeah I mean that's the The Steve Harvey mindset is not isolated. I think that on these 20-some to 30-some people, our generation, there's this definite uh, pressure exerted on us, which tries to make us feel like if we're not constantly grinding and monetizing and making every spare second of our lives productive that we're falling behind and... Uh, I don't don't support it I don't I I don't like that mindset and it's my hope that we can recognize and overcome it
0: as we record a podcast in our spare time
1: yeah but this is like uh, I don't know I guess I'll speak for myself this is my favorite hobby thing that I do so I'm (laughs) not I'm not complaining
0: yeah I, I would say same Alrighty, I I think that's uh, all I have to say on sleep. Excellent. Alright, so, we got a main topic today, Evan, right? We sure do. It's a big one.
1: It is.
0: Alright, my attempts to bounce this off to you have been unsuccessful. So... (laughs) Both Evan and I, I have uh, listened to the audiobook and Evan has read the book, Why We're Polarized by Ezra Klein. And this is quite a foundational book for at least the moment that we're in, in American politics. Uh, you got any intros?
1: Yeah. So basically what Ezra Klein who for those of you who aren't sure he was he's the co-founder of Vox and he hosts a podcast that Joe and I both listen to the Ezra Klein show which we highly recommend for more deep dive discussions on policy and if you want to see how
0: we're frauds listen to that show
1: (laughs) yeah if you want to hear what we do but better check out Ezra Klein um but uh what, what he's noticed is that more and more it seems like between the political parties there is less and less ideological overlap and less willing to compromise and then as individuals we are sorting ourselves more and more into these two distinct and mutually exclusive camps and are finding less middle ground with each other this is the phenomenon known as polarization and so Ezra Klein tries to quantify this increase in polarization and then explain what's going on why is this happening and the biggest
0: takeaway that this book gives is that it was more of an anomaly that we weren't polarized in a time before and that the reason we're polarized is not because of the normal answers of some bad actors. You know, you be at your, your Mitch McConnell's or Fox news is, or what, you know, a similar equivalence, your Rachel Maddow's, but it's more of a case that this is a system. We live in a political system that encourages polarization it's not like uh you know people are like oh we're gonna divide the public publics are normally divided and it was kind of weird that we didn't use that that it was weird that we there was a time when we weren't polarized
1: yeah the the founders didn't include any guardrails against polarization because they didn't foresee the rise in prominence of political parties and so they didn't see a need to build in mechanisms to stop polarization from happening. And as Klein argues, it is our fundamental psychological nature to sort into groups and then to strive for our group to maintain supremacy over outgroups, regardless of the actual material reward for our own group. There's a really interesting study that he talks about where two groups of boys from the same school were asked to look at pictures of dots and then estimate how many dots were in the picture. Then they were split into two groups based on whether they estimated the number of dots higher or lower than were actually on the page. But the trick was that that was not the reason why they were grouped together. The groups were assigned at random. Then after the dot counting part of the experiment... The boys were asked to take a pool of money and assign it to other boys that were either in their group or not in their group. This was creating a group mentality on the smallest, most inconsequential scale. And yet what the researchers found was that you were overwhelmingly more likely to reward people from your own group, even if it had no direct impact on you yourself, and the boys were willing to take a lesser overall payout if it meant the difference between their group's payout and their opposite group payout was larger, even if it meant they got less overall. And this These studies on group psychology have been replicated numerous times, and what we find is that essentially it was part of our collective survival was to sort ourselves into groups and defend ourselves against threats. And so that's what we're seeing played out in the political landscape.
0: Yeah, basically if you see someone as your enemy, you derive more enjoyment out of seeing them fail versus seeing you succeed which is a it it is a hell of a finding but it does feel somewhat intuitive if you really don't Mm -hmm. like someone you may be willing to sacrifice your own well-being in order to make theirs materially worse and but then we get into the question of why wasn't our political system like that before so people often hearken back to the era of, like, say, the 1950s, the 1960s, and a little bit past that, where it was seen as this golden age of democracy where the two parties would work together to get things done. There were disagreements, but they were settled, and everybody would go have a beer with each other and go to each other's t-ball games in Washington. And, oh, it was such a dandy time to be a an American and a congressman at that time. But there's a reason why that was the case. And that was basically because the two parties had decided that neither one was going to take up the mantle of race. There was this third rail in American politics that everyone had decided, like everyone had decided to ignore and because they decided to ignore it then they could be in polite conversation with each other over other things as Ezra points out that during the 50s and 60s there were essentially four parties in the United States so there were Democrats and Republicans but there were they were more coalitional so you know with when you talk about parties there's kind of The idea that, you know, a party is one distinct entity, everybody in it has the same ideas and all that kind of stuff, which isn't too true to the American experience. And then if they have to, in order to wield power, act uh, with another group of people who have different views than you, then they would be a coalitional government or a party. So what was essentially happening in the mid-century was... Within the Republican Party, there were two wings of it. There were, you know, liberal Republicans and conservative Republicans. But the real deal was in the Democratic Party, where the Democratic Party, there was the sector of the Democratic Party that was more or less what the Democratic Party of today is. And then there were the Dixiecrats, which are almost like kind of a fun fact today, but in the times were a really dangerous authoritarian party where in the south because of the civil war um, which side note these divisions were caused by the civil war republic republican versus democrat wasn't conservative versus liberal it was were you like a northerner or were you a a southerner on the side of the south basically So Dixiecrats held a one-party rule in the South where they faced very little competition, hardly ever got uh, challenged in elections because of that got extreme tenure in the uh, halls of Congress. And because of that, they were able to exert their will to make sure that race was off the table. And because the, you know, the rest of the Democratic Party made this grand bargain to be in coalition with the Dixiecrats who weren't the same ideologically, but all they cared about was suppressing the issues of race in this country, then this uh, this allowed for, other issues to be talked about freely as long as nobody took up the position of race.
1: Yeah, the Democrats, uh, the Northern Democrats made a deal with the devil. They said the Dixiecrats, the Southern Democrats will align with us and give us the votes and political support we need to pass programs like uh, the New Deal and other uh, social reform programs as long as we never try to take a stand against lynching as as long as we never, that that was really a a big crux of it was uh, the Dixiecrats would often exert their power to stop federal anti-lynching standards because that was how they maintained their authoritarian rule in the South was through the heinous lynchings. And as long as Northern Democrats looked the other way, they could form that coalition and get some other stuff done.
0: But then in the 1960s, due to the Civil Rights Movement, the Northern Democrats and the liberal Republicans essentially entered into coalition together to pass the Civil Rights Act.
1: Yeah, Lyndon Um, B. Johnson decided that it was worth fracturing the Dixiecrats away from the rest of the Democratic Party to get the Civil Rights Act passed in
0: 1964. So, and... Another small detail was that at that time, there were political scientists who were, you know, woeful of the American political system because the two parties were the same. You know, if you've ever heard someone say, oh, the parties, they're just the same thing. And during that time period, that was pretty much correct. Um, There were liberal Republicans. There were conservative Democrats um the strom thurman a democrat for the longest time when he was still a democrat he was the second most conservative member in the senate and he was a democrat Mm -hmm. um so this allowed the two parties to work together but when the civil rights legislation came along then the liberal Republicans and the uh, non-Dixiecrat Democrats entered into coalition to pass that. And then basically what has happened over time is that the liberal Republicans became Democrats and the Dixiecrats became Republicans.
1: Yeah, the parties became reoriented along the cleavage of race and support for... Racial issues. Now, uh, as a lot of people are quick to point out, it seemed like a more Republican cause to take up the mantle of race. However, their candidate following the Civil Rights Act was Barry Goldwater, and Goldwater was an arch conservative. He actually was a conservative Republican.
0: Yeah, for and a so, good. Uh, yeah, for a good long period of. In American politics, actual conservatism was much more on the fringes of the party than an actual mainstay ideology within any of them. Like, even when the Republican Party started to become more ideological in the 70s and 80s, it wasn't until Ronald Reagan that any sort of actual conservatism was part of the party. And so Barry Goldwater... Taking up the mantle of the Republican Party as a staunch racist who wanted to repeal the Civil Rights Act and bring back segregation essentially destroyed any goodwill that the Republican Party could have enjoyed from being the party that had a bigger hand in bringing around the Civil Rights Act.
1: So when Goldwater ran for president, the only states that he won were in the old Confederacy, the Dixiecrat states. And so that started the political realignment that we sort of see today.
0: Yeah. And it's happened bit by bit Um, there. You know, even as late as 20 years ago, there were more conservative Democrats and more liberal Republicans Because for whatever reason, they still felt that their party loyalty was more about party and not about ideology. But now party loyalty, I mean, there is no party loyalty, but there is loyalty to ideology. And then there is loyalty to party through that ideology.
1: And this is another one of Klein's really big concepts is the idea that our partisan identities have sorted and aligned with so many of our other identities that they've now formed mega identities, which are really easy to activate easy to make you feel threatened, and very difficult to change. So it's what we talk about when we talk about how you can sort of uh, guess if someone is liberal or conservative based on other preferences. There really shouldn't be any intrinsic reason why how you feel about guns aligns with how you feel about taxation, which aligns with how you feel about abortion, which aligns with how you feel about... Uh, trucks but uh, that's sort of what it's become we've we've sorted our identities and that to the point where they become all-encompassing and you're not really voting based on specific policies that you like or don't like but you're voting because of what your vote says about you it says I am a Democrat I am a Republican and so identity has become absolutely crucial in modern politics, he talks about how identity politics is really only thrown about to dismiss concerns of minorities and marginalized groups. But every single person participates in identity politics. It's just that when they're often white and conservative, they don't get called identity politics.
0: It's just politics. Yeah. Um, and, and there's this really interesting question of... Whether, you know, people become polarized because they just naturally become it or if they're looking towards the their parties or, you know, on a grander scale of what they believe in or even more scarily what they don't believe in to form those identities. Like so in the past, it was perfectly reasonable to be like pro-gun anti, uh, or pro abortion, you know, you could have a miss mismatch of ideas that you would today. But the idea is that what the parties sorted and through that, everybody kind of looked at back and forth at each other. And it's like, well, I want to be socially acceptable. I want to be part of my in group, or I don't want to be part of the out group. I don't want to be the the Democrats. I don't want to be the Republicans. So I'm going to do what they don't do. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to believe what they don't do. Um, Ezra, you know, I don't know if this was in his book, but he has mused about this several times in interviews and other conversations. Is that so before Obamacare was uh, passed there, Obamacare was essentially Romney care in Massachusetts and they had been a lot of Republican thinkers who, you know, thought about the healthcare issue, and that was essentially the plan that they had put forward. What would later become Obamacare and called the socialist nightmare, but <laughs> and they had all all of those plans had been based on the idea of an individual mandate, which essentially says that the government is saying you have to purchase health insurance. Otherwise, we're gonna levy a fine against you. And every Republican who was working on their versions of healthcare plans all agreed that a individual mandate was necessary and that it was constitutional. But then as soon as Obama took up the mantle of Romney care and put it forward as his health care plan. Every Republican who had been supporter of individual mandates before all lined up and said, and maybe even truthfully said they all sincerely changed their opinion that the individual mandate was unconstitutional. They had gone from all believing that it was constitutional to believing that it wasn't. And that may have even felt sincere in those people's minds. I, I mean, people who, uh, you know, aren't as uh, believing in those people would probably say they're just lying, which they could have been. But partisanship and a specifically negative partisanship where you don't want to be part of the other side's group is such a hell of a drug that you can very well change your whole opinion Because the other side supports it, and you don't want to be part of it. And the change can feel very sincere to you when it may not be.
1: Yeah, negative partisanship is really crazy, because what researchers have found is that you are more likely to go and vote if you feel a strong hatred for the opposing candidate than if you feel a strong sense of pride in your own candidate. Negative partisanship is hugely influential. But I want to talk about this individual mandate again. I'm so glad you brought that up because I was going to do it if you didn't, because <laughs> I think it's it's such a fascinating case study for polarization. The idea of the individual mandate was originated in 1989 by the Heritage Institution or the Heritage Foundation. A conservative think tank. And it was done as a way to essentially provide an alternative to Medicare for all and universal coverage or universal single payer, which conservatives do not support. And the individual mandate was overwhelmingly popular, not just in Massachusetts for Romney care, but nationally as well. And in 2007, a bipartisan coalition working on health care reform sponsored the Healthy Americans Act, which before the Affordable Care Act, before Obama got elected, was sort of the legislation in progress for healthcare reform. And I'm gonna pick on Lindsey Graham because he's such a dweeb, but other, other conservative senators were in coalition with him, but I'm gonna use Lindsey Graham as my avatar here. Lindsey Graham was a co-sponsor of the Healthy Americans Act. He attached his name to a plan that included an individual mandate. And then in 2009, when it was Obama's idea, Lindsey Graham was on the Senate floor decrying how unconstitutional it was. And like Joe said, it could have been that he, within a very short two-year window, radically changed how he thought about health care. But it's more likely to me that it's the result of polarization and not wanting to support what the other guy does.
0: Yeah. If you think about the idea of the individual mandate and kind of Obamacare in general, it it is kind of a, uh, the the kind of logic of it follows kind of Republican ideas. It's that the government's not just going to step in and give you health care, but we do believe it is in the individual uh, interest for everybody to have health care. Like we require people to wear seatbelts uh, to help or have car, car insurance. Yeah. yeah, to have car insurance. That's a individual mandate if you think about it. So it is. yeah, Yeah, the government definitely has the power to mandate that you have insurance. So it is in the greater public benefit for everybody to have health insurance and to take up the mantle of being able to provide it for yourself. You have to do it, but it is your individual responsibility to make that happen, which is a long a Republican ethos to make it happen, you know, for providing healthcare to people. But as soon as Obama came and ran with it, it was so toxic. No Republican could support it. Um, You know, and
1: it passed without a, res- a single Republican vote.
0: Yeah. And you like to, you know, you teeter back and forth on the, uh, Were they opposed to Obama because he was black or did they have, you know, sincerely oppose him or it could have been, you know, it's such a shock that, you know, the first black president comes along that, you know, maybe, you know, in their actual feelings, they don't think it's because, you know, he's uh, he's black. He's of a different creed than every other president that has ever come before, but they can code it as, oh, they don't like him because of who he has and his ideas and i mean you know it, it and it goes both ways but it it's just and i i think we uh i think we got to delve a little bit more into identity politics because that was another such a big thing so the way Identity politics gets thrown around now is that identity politics is something that minorities pull out when they feel like they're being oppressed or they have some social ailment, or, you know, oftentimes seen as a flimsy reason for doing things. That it's like, oh, because I'm a black person, I have this experience. And I feel like we as a society should go about this this way. Whereas when it's somebody who's in the mainstream, not a minority, if you're like a white Christian man and you are to base your political opinions off of the, you know, the foundation of being a white Christian man in society, we often code that as just politics, but it is also very much identity politics. Like if you like, it is not. (laughs) So I think under this kind of definition, we can kind of see that if, you know, we take the word political correctness, political correctness is kind of going against some sort of identity politics or someone's identity politics. So if you were to say something politically incorrect in kind of the leftward direction, it would be politically incorrect to call someone the N-word or to imply that um, minorities' issues economically are due to personal choices versus systemic problems. But if you cut the other way, if you go against the you know identity of you know kind of white christian culture or what it's become it's politically incorrect to say that there are some cops out there who are bad people it is politically incorrect to say that a fair number of priests within the catholic church are uh, molesters and abusers it is politically incorrect to bring up those ideas within those people But because they are in the majority, it is just seen as disrespectful, not as politically incorrect.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good uh, observation there, that the difference between disrespectful and politically incorrect is really just one of labeling.
0: Yeah. Um, And this gets into another section, is that the reason why the political correctness realm gets so thrown around in about leftist spaces versus spaces on the right is because the demo the modern Democratic party is much more coalitional than the Republican party is. So currently because of geographical uh, advantages and who their constituents are, the Republican Party is mainly this party of white Christian America, white Christian conservative America. And that is a big enough block that they can really just play to that group. They don't have to go out and find other people to go be part of their political party, whereas the uh, Democratic Party has to be in coalition with the the liberal, yeah, the liberal white people, <laughs> all the different minorities, you know, black, uh, the the black population votes so squarely for the Democratic Party because the Republican Party has given them such a raw deal over the years. But
1: yeah, it's there over are seventy pl- percent, yeah.
0: But there are plenty of conservative black people who vote Democratic, and there are pl- and there are liberal black people as well. But then you also have to enter into coalition with the LGBTQ crowd. You have to go in coalition with, uh, you know, the Mexican immigrants and uh, people who they are sympathetic to. So there are a lot more groups that Democrats have to play to and they have to defend in order to make them happy. So if you go on, like, you know, you watch daytime cable news, there will be members of Congress lining up to, you know, make statements on whatever's happening in today. And Democrats have a much wider playing field of who they have to defend and who they have to stand up for than the Republicans. Republicans just... They, they almost get to, because of their majority status, they get to just kind of stand up for true Americans or the American people. Whereas when Democrats stand up for people, it is seen as these fractured individual groups, which they are, but they don't get to be coded in some greater language than just the American people.
1: Yeah, and I think that this... Um... This divide racially, uh, what what Klein argues is that this is sort of what fuels the intensity of polarization because the way that your identities get activated most passionately is when you feel like you're under threat. And with the changing demographics in America, there's the understanding that um, white dominance demographically is really on its way out. And so this means that that base of people on in, in the Republican Party feel very threatened. And when different political actors activate those threats, this is where they can be inflamed and encouraged to adopt more extreme viewpoints, which just furthers more polarization.
0: Yeah. And this leads to kind of the asymmetry of the American polarization, where The Republican Party has been able to go further down the road than Democrats have, mostly because of the nature of the Democrats' coalitional nature and also geography. Like, so since. Yeah, can you explain the, the
1: geographical pull a little bit more?
0: Yeah, so one of the findings in Klein's book that he found from some other research is that if you. If you live in an area that has, oh, I forget what the exact mem- me- measurement was, but if, if I remember
1: some, the exact measurement, it's go for the it. population density cutoff line is 900 people per square mile.
0: Yeah. So if you live in an area that is more dense than 900 people per square mile, you are going to live in a democratic or more liberal area. And if you live in an area that is more sparsely populated than or, you know, has less population than 900 people per square mile, then you're going to be conservative or that area is going to trend to conservatism. And this finding was so strong that it's I if I remember correctly, there were no exceptions in the greater United States.
1: I think you said that there were like. A couple of conservative, like I think he said two conservative areas that were above that level and no liberal areas that were below that level. Yeah. So in an entire country, two, which is statistically insignificant.
0: Yeah. So with that in mind, since the American political system rewards rural states more spot uh, sparsely populated states over through
1: institutions like the electoral college and the senate which award representation based on geographical barriers rather than population
0: and still even at a much more uh to a lesser degree still even the house of representatives to to the nature yeah. of how representative- through
1: gerrymandering and yeah other- more foundational yeah. things. Yeah.
0: So through geography, Republican, you know, you see, uh, Republicans like to tout out a map every, you know, after every like presidential election that, um, you know, a greater part of the United States voted for Republicans versus Democrats, but that's just geographical space. That's not people. So, Geographically, Republicans, um, have a greater play at a greater, you know, they the power that they fight for is higher power per vote than what Democrats are going after.
1: And it's I think important to point out that when we talk about demographic shifts, it also is there. There is an urban-rural component to it. Um, Basically. People are moving out of rural areas, and the population is becoming more densely concentrated, and this is furthering Republican stranglehold on geographic areas. When Bill Clinton ran for president in the 90s, he won about half of the counties in the United States. With Obama, it was even fewer, and Hillary Clinton won less than one-third of American counties but all three of them won the popular vote. It's just that more and more votes are being concentrated in fewer fewer and fewer counties and our system of representation has not updated to reflect that change in how our population is distributed. It's estimated that by 2040, 70% of the US population will be concentrated in 15 states. So that means that if we don't change how... The Senate is composed, 70% of senators will only represent 30% of our population, and vice versa. Those who live in those big, highly concentrated states will have 70% of the population and only 30% of Senate representation.
0: Yeah, so basically, the Republican Party can continue to win with a minority of voters. Which is not what the founders had quite intended when they said protecting the minority. Um, yeah, um, it is still believed that um, you know majorities should be able to govern. Um, so this um, shit. I'm trying to. Yeah, Ezra is good. Keeping the threads of these conversations is tough. <laughs> Yeah, it is. Um, uh, do we go into wrap up, or do, uh, are there other? Oh, points I got, I got some make... more.
1: Yeah, okay. Because I think there's there's a big one that uh, that hasn't come up yet, and that's uh, the role that the media plays in this. Because Ezra obviously is a powerful person in the media, and he's very self conscious about the role that the media plays in responding to and shaping polarization and eventually what he finds out is probably what you'd expect that it's, it's a cyclical relationship he calls it a feedback loop um, basically media outlets have to cater to a more polarized public so they publish more polarized stories and then people consume these more polarized stories and become more polarized themselves and it's it's kind of a vicious cycle and something that i wanted to say about his observations on the media uh, that i thought were really insightful were two uh, really commonly held beliefs that he sort of disproves things that i had sort of assumed to be true that he has researched to suggest that it's not the case um number one is that the issues in our politics of polarization are because people just aren't educated enough That if everyone consumed more news, that they would be able to have more information, make better informed decisions, and they wouldn't be reliant upon extremists on either side to guide the conversation. But this has been proven to be false. In studies that have tracked extreme polarizing views and correlation with news consumption, what you find is that both liberals and conservatives who are more plugged into the news become more polarized. And this is probably because of that feedback loop. And then the other thing that I think a lot of people assume to be true is that we're polarized because we create these echo chambers. We only listen to views that agree with us. But again, the research shows that this is not true. People who are exposed, people who typically read one type of news and are then exposed to articles from the other side of the aisle often exhibit more polarized tendencies in controlled study environments. And this actually makes a lot of sense the way Klein explains it. It's something called identity protective cognition. If we are living in an age where our political identities are so important to us, we're not going to try to erode those identities. We're going to try to strengthen them because identity is so central to our sense of self and ability to live our lives on a daily basis. And so all that it does to read across the aisle is inoculate you against those types of arguments. You don't try to process in good faith the other side of the aisle by and large. You just look for supporting evidence to dismantle those arguments that don't already agree with you. In a news landscape, in a media landscape, where we have so much choice in what to consume and so much information at our fingertips, it becomes easier to cherry-pick facts that support your side. So unfortunately, it looks like the media is both a victim and perpetrator for polarization and typical strategies to reduce polarization, such as greater media literacy and reading across the aisle are not effective at reducing polarization.
0: Yeah, like Ezra said, he's he's uh, argued with nine uh, eleven deniers, and they are very up to date on the facts about the melting points of steel. Um, they they know a lot of things about what happened with the Twin Towers
1: Mm -hmm. It's just
0: a it's, you know, a cherry picked way to, uh, you know, reach the uh, intended end point of their argument. But man, with echo chambers, I I think it may actually cut in a different direction that everybody uh, tends to think. Everybody thinks of echo chambers of, oh, we're all here just saying the same thing. We all believe the same thing. Well... I think the big way that echo chambers, at least in the media sphere, is that there, there can be an echo chamber of negative partisanship where it's like, get a load of this. Look at what this other bad example of the other side is doing. It happens all the time. You know, one way Fox News is really good at their job is that they're essentially a local news outlet that broadcasts nationally, like all their feeder stations serve the purpose of finding some way a liberal cause has overstepped its bounds anywhere in the United States and extrapolate that to that liberals everywhere are like that. So anytime, you know, some kids on a college campus, no matter how big or small happens anywhere in the country, they're there reporting it like it's happening everywhere. Or, you know, they find some guy who just is a bum and surfs all day and gets government assistance to help him just surf all day and be a bum. They find him. And make it out that these people are everywhere. And it happens on the liberal side. You know, it's all the time on Twitter. You know, you pull up some tweet or some clip of some like news broadcast or maybe somebody went and interviewed someone on the street and they were a real bigot and they were wearing a maggot hat or a a MAGA hat.
1: (laughs) Freudian slip.
0: Yeah. And and we share that like crazy, like I ah, get the lo- get a load of this bigot They They're all like this. They this is the ethos of the Republican Party. This is who those people are. And yeah,
1: I think. Go ahead. Sorry. Oh,
0: I was just going to wrap up. I. Okay. I don't...
1: Yeah, no, but I think that the the the, the example that Ezra Klein talks about, to represent sort of both sides of this divide was that uh Covington Catholic protest, yeah. where the the kids, the teenagers in the MAGA hat had some brief tense encounter with some other protesters and then a Native American counter-protester, and by all accounts nothing really happened. They were just kind of, you know, maybe at best some people were a little disrespectful or rude, but it became a huge flashpoint where the left denounced the Covington Catholic kids and the right, um, you know, defended them. And both sides talked about how this absolutely inconsequential event represented the absolute decay of the other party when there were absolutely no stakes to the actual incident in question. It became a flashpoint for this identity clash.
0: Yeah. Everybody tacks on the greater battles that they see within their political world onto any minute issue. And I mean, hell I was guilty of that when that happened.
1: <laughs> and,
0: um, yeah, it, it, partisanship is a hell of a drug, but it, Like we said earlier, it doesn't take much to trigger an identity when, even if it doesn't even matter, but these things matter. You know, if you sincerely believe that abortion is killing a child, that's a very big deal to you. That's very real.
1: Very powerful. Yeah.
0: If you believe that people not having health care is uh, leading to people dying and is a very uh, and it's a, a collective issue versus an individual issue, then health care is very very important to you and that's something real.
1: Well, when they're activated, you you can't stay on the sidelines because you know we have we have so many identities that really don't have a lot of political consequence. I'm. A Chicago Bears fan and a college graduate and a podcaster and you know if somebody says go Packers that activates my identity as a Bears fan if you know there's a discussion about higher education that triggers my identity as a college graduate and what my education has meant to me and the issue is that when these identities all become aligned threatening one threatens all of them and that's a very scary emotional reaction
0: yeah, they uh, the stacking is the biggest thing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, that's it's it's definitely been interesting to watch that happen over time. And like we said, people at least feel very sincerely that this is truly happening to them. Oh yeah, and I think I I remember the point I wanted to make now is that. So we talked earlier about, you know, there is kind of in America, the dominant white Christian conservative demographic. And there is the rising minority driven, more ethnically diverse, uh, ideologically diverse coalition that is also coming up. And it's so what is happening is that power is being. Essentially taken from the uh, white conservative uh, coalition or group and being taken by the greater, newly, more ethnically diverse future coalition. And this is happening in culture and then this is happening in politics, but. The this is something that Evan and I have talked about personally. There's kind of this quote that goes around is that um, I think you actually, Evan, I bet you have it. You could say it better than I would.
1: Yeah. So the the thing that we're referring to here is the notion that when you're used to privilege, equality feels like oppression.
0: Yes. So we are we are truly kind of at the beginning of the takedown of the long historical majority in the United States, uh, cultural, ethnically, what have you. And for them, it is definitely gonna feel like oppression. And like we we so many people throw that idea around like, oh, it's just silly, It's silly that they feel oppressed. It, you know, it, it, it's not real. They're just other people are just being able to have more power. But this this is, this will really feel like oppression to those people. And they act like it act in more desperate measures. This is why Trump was seen as the, you know, kind of the great savior of being able for it to be OK to be a white Christian conservative person in society and um if it feels like oppression it feels like oppression this is why like when movies like black panther come out and they have such critical acclaim people are like well why why do i have do i have to feel like this is such a great movie do i am i racist if i don't come out and immediately praise this work of art like, because that's kind of what some of the discourse and implications are by some people. And it can feel it, those feelings, I feel like those feelings need to be taken seriously.
1: Yeah. Um, prosperity is not a zero sum game, but political power is. And I think it is absolutely good and appropriate. If America is becoming more diverse for more diverse coalitions to have more power, but you can't give them that power without taking it away from someone else. And I'm not here trying to say that it is oppressive or that, you know, racism is justified, but I think there's a very emotional component to it that we are not addressing. Just pointing out and decrying white fragility doesn't do anything to alleviate it. And as long as we continue to let it fester, it will manifest itself as hatred and a doubling down on oppression. So I agree, even if not on a political level, I think on a personal level, we have to address that very real feeling that is driving some of this. My And this is where I'm going to you know break from any study or book that I've read and just express what I feel personally. I think one of the biggest issues in our society is an abject lack of compassion and i think we need to be more responsible for taking care of each other's emotional needs in that way
0: yeah and i i'm gonna like there are people who say that and then they mostly just mean we need to look out for the needs of minorities which is true
1: it's true and we can't ignore that it's true and in addition to feeling oppressed they actually are oppressed so they need unique and more extensive safeguards in place. Right. But it also but, cuts
0: the other way.
1: Or on the emotional level if not yeah. the if not the actual tangible material level the emotion is real and ignoring that impulse obviously has not worked.
0: I mean, this is why conservatives talk a lot about the culture wars. And on the left, it's just the culture. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. there is a very real feeling among a greater swath of conservative America that their culture is just not respected or something that Um, The culture makers believe is something that should be celebrated. Um, You know, the the, I don't know. People always go back to like Duck Dynasty, who was having, you know, when it was running as a show, was doing Mondo numbers. Its ratings were through the roof. Each episode was getting like eight million viewers But then if you looked at the New York Times the next day, there was only a review of that night's episode of Girls, which maybe had 300,000 people watch it. There's this feeling that the culture of conservative America isn't being respected. And I mean... a fair point of the people who make the culture, they, you know, can see it as, you know, bigoted or backward or not permitting such and such lifestyle. But, you know, I think there are still valuable parts of it, but just, there's nobody, there's no like movie that's reaching universal acclaim that is, um, espousing the kind of more conservative culture Green book <clears throat> I haven't watched it.
1: It sucks, but I mean it it won the Oscar for Best Picture. but it was very much sort of a backlash, I think to the you know liberal Hollywood. the uh, the the guy who wrote it and won Oscars for it is like a 911 truther Trump guy and uh, but your your larger point is valid. anyway.
0: So, there are some questions. (laughs) What do we do with all this? And Ezra Klein was very reticent to say anything about what do we do about this. (laughs) Um, He's, like most books that, you know, have some critique of society or talk about, you know, anything. There is always, almost always, the last chapter where they say, and what do we do about it? And the question isn't so much what can we do about it. Like there isn't like if there was a slate of legislation that we could pass to cure this, we wouldn't be in this situation. Mm-hmm. Um, this this wouldn't be the problem. But one suggestion that Ezra Klein makes that not so much alleviate polarization, but be able to work within it is to, crazy idea, make government able to work under polarization. (laughs) And one of the biggest things is getting rid of the filibuster in the Senate so that a governing or just a majority, whoever has the most seats, can pass things. And it's interesting within the history of the Senate that the filibuster was an accident. It was more of like a, nobody had thought of it, but it was just kind of a consequence of a few different rules. And Yeah,
1: basically it, it started out that the rule was the same in the House and the Senate where you could just move to previous question and then it would force a vote. But the Senate got rid of the previous question in their procedures. And so that meant there was now no way to stop anyone from just talking ad infinitum. The filibuster literally was an accident based on the repeal of a Senate rule with no compensating uh, and subsequent rule change. And cloture wasn't even adopted until decades after that. So
0: Yeah, well, it was like decades after the filibuster, quote, existed, then the senators actually found that it existed. <laughs> <laughs> and then... And then in the past, the filibuster was used sparingly. Like we talked before, it was one of the biggest things that it was used for was any sort of anti lynching legislation used by the Dixiecrats. So, but now we're in this modern era where each party, you know, because since nothing has gotten done, like I think the last big legislative thing that has happened in america was obamacare and that was 10 years ago yeah um so nothing major or consequential has happened since then and because of that the stakes have ratcheted up on whatever does happen and each side chooses that if the party is going to try and pass anything that they have to have those 60 votes Mind you, it does not take 60 votes to pass something in the Senate. It just takes a bare um, majority, but it takes 60 votes to stop a filibuster. Mm -hmm. And under that, it, you know, if the other party threatens to filibuster everything, then nothing happens unless you have more than a majority so, the I and part of why the two parties kind of get to have these increasingly aggressive ideologies is because neither one is able to fulfill either of their ideologies. They can just kind of keep playing it up, and then they're never held responsible by their own party members because. They can very easily and correctly say that it's the fault of the other party that they weren't able to get anything done. I believe that there would be a lot of good if we just let the parties govern. You know, I am a liberal guy, but I think that the Republican Party platform is bad enough that if they actually enacted it, it would be hugely unpopular. (laughs)
1: Yeah. And the the takeaway is regardless of what side you're on, because I know I think that it's very easy for us to rip on conservatives for this. And there's actually a, a lot of it is pretty fair, but it does cut both ways. Polarization is on. You can't have polarization without two sides. Um, but yeah, that's the idea is. If we let the ruling party enact their legislation, then at least people can see for themselves whether that world is better or worse than the status quo. Right now, we're denying them that chance.
0: Yeah. In the past, in the 50s and 60s, we were denying people their ability to choose an uh, ideological party and actually have it enact that ideology. Now we live in a world where you can have whatever ideology, but we basically
1: hamstring uh, hey, it so that you can't actually see it reflected in governmental yeah. policy, at least yeah. legislatively.
0: Yeah, um, so it is quite a, a, a grim view of things and there isn't a whole lot of hope and it does play on a, a way I like to look at things that is more systematic than just individual players. Um, I like systematic thinking a lot Same. because, because, you know, the way individual players act is because of the system that they're in. Like, like, uh, Mitch McConnell stealing Merrick Garland's, uh, you know, uh, Supreme court nomination, you know, I'll say, He didn't do anything unconstitutional. That's true. And that's what's so aggravating about it is because under the decorum of the United States that, you know, you would just hear the nomination of the other side. He was just like, well, what if I don't? I don't have to. And this thing is very important to me.
1: Yeah, he didn't have a good reason for it. He had no defensible intellectual justification the reasoning that he gave was in absolute bad faith but he broke no laws and he didn't do you know he didn't violate his oath of office he just chose to do things in an expressly partisan way but there was really nothing stopping him
0: i mean the way i like i you know i've been kind of thinking about it is like what if in baseball there was just like this weird tradition where if someone hit the ball and it was fielded by the third baseman that they would just let them go to first base. Like they wouldn't even try to throw the ball to the first baseman to get them out. They'd be like, ah, oh, you, you hit it to the third baseman, get your uh, first base here. And then someday, but it wasn't against any rule. It was just like some weird tradition. And then all of a sudden one day it was like some third baseman was like, hey, I'm going to throw it to first and get the guy out, because why wouldn't I?
1: <laughs> yeah, and that's actually, I think, a really good um, parallel, because we're learning that the United States Congress, much like baseball, is has or at least has been for years governed by a set of unwritten rules, and if you choose not to follow that, you might be able to gain a competitive advantage.
0: Because... The- <laughs> You know, rules you can point to the book. Tradition it's just like, but but this is how we've done it. We always say grace before meal, but you just started
1: eating. And there's nothing you can really do about that. Yeah. The other side can pretty justifiably say too bad, so sad. Too bad, so sad. So um think So about, yeah, this is yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Oh well, this is uh, it, this is a place where Joe and I probably differ because Joe is always very uh, reluctant to look into solution proposals at the end of books like these. But I love it. I think that if you've done enough research to figure out what the problem is, hopefully you have at least a couple of suggestions. You know, I'm not expecting anyone to claim they have a panacea, but I'm, I'm always interested in the suggestion. So I, I maybe uh, took took more copious notes on this this uh, solution section. And uh, there's basically five things that he recommends. Number one is what he calls bomb proofing. It means to stop polarization from causing huge problems. And the main way that this happens is in terms of the debt ceiling. So basically, the US government is really messed up in how it authorizes its own spending. Basically, in one session, they agree to whatever they're going to do and spend, and then they have to have a separate session to say, okay, we are allowed to borrow this money. It's completely weird and stupid. And so if we're in a polarized system, then we make it harder to pass legislation and therefore harder to pass budgets and harder to raise the debt ceiling. The consequences of not raising the debt ceiling and risking the United States defaulting on its loans, I'm not going to get into it all here because it's uh, very complicated and I don't even have the perfect handle on it. But basically, if we fail to raise the debt ceiling, it could have ripple effects in the global market and cause economic catastrophe. So, yeah,
0: Yeah, if the United uh, States doesn't, The the United States Treasury bond is basically the backbone of the entire financial world where everything else is built upon that. It is deemed a zero risk investment. And if you don't have that, the kind of the, the world financial market would have a big realignment that would cause a
1: whole
0: lot of issues.
1: Yes, so if we um, bomb-proof the system so that we don't have to have separate resolutions to raise the debt ceiling and our spending can become more streamlined, then even if things are polarized, then at least they won't be... That bad. They won't have an economic catastrophe as a consequence, because that's the ultimate thing is that Joe's absolutely correct. Ezra Klein doesn't really see a way to reverse polarization. It's more about how to work within a polarized system and create a responsive government. Number two, and this is where the, the dropping of the filibuster comes. It's in democratization, making sure that the will of the people can actually be felt so this means getting rid of things like the electoral college reforming the senate giving representation to washington dc and puerto rico ending the filibuster and increasing voting access making sure that if we do have a majority in this country that their political will can be enacted and then the third sort of big picture solution is uh talking about balancing so accounting for political parties In the government structure instead of trying to ignore them and then he's got a couple of personal solutions as well number one of those and number four overall is that of identity mindfulness essentially if you're aware of which of your identities are activated and when you can better manage them so that you're not just enraged when someone says go Packers then the final idea that he has is to restore the politics of place we are so focused on the national politics, and our podcast does this absolutely, but if you can focus on local issues that impact people in your community, you will start to get a better sense of community and maybe be willing to work with others a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. And then, okay, Joe, I wanna, I'm wanna. i going to pitch this. I'm going to run it by you real quick. Mm-hmm. Um, I have one critique, only one of this entire book. Oh, go for it. It doesn't so much contradict anything Ezra Klein says, but I think it's something that is notable that he omitted, and that is the relationship between polarization and economic inequality. Basically, this comes from The Broken Ladder by Keith Payne, which is a foundational book for me. And one of the things that Payne found in his research is that we can track, and there is a huge correlation between levels of economic inequality in this country, and levels of political polarization. And the reason is when we are stratified by class, we don't identify with each other as much, and therefore we're less willing to work with one another. And again, I don't think that that invalidates any of Klein's arguments. I just think that it's another important social condition that accelerates polarization that he didn't address. And you can't address everything, but that was notable for me.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Maybe I should read that book because you cited a lot and I am not nearly as quick to jump on the, ah, this was caused by inequality or uh, train. So who knows? Maybe I'll read that.
1: Yeah. It's a great book. I... Uh, really i cite it a lot (laughs) you do (laughs) so So anything more on why we're polarized i
0: i just gotta say it is i think it is a foundational book of the modern era it is absolutely essential if you want to understand what's going on and you be able to use it to actually do anything
1: i mean this is one of our longest main segments that we've ever done and we still there's so much that we didn't even cover i think we gave a pretty good overview but if this has been at all interesting to you it is a phenomenal book full of insight and i highly recommend it as well
0: yeah yeah i i the full recommendation of if you're gonna read one book about uh, (laughs) politics these days I I highly highly recommend it. So, Agreed. so with that, um, I think we may do a quick wrap up with politics these days. We'll keep it brief. Yep. <laughs> Very brief. So, South Carolina happened, or
1: Joe Biden won big. He got almost fifty percent of the vote and now leads the overall popular vote in the Democratic primary because of South Carolina's large population.
0: Yep. So it's looking like it may be Bernie and Biden.
1: Yep. It uh, Bernie still has a narrow lead in the delegates from his strong showings in the first three states and Biden's weak showings in the first three states. Um, uh, Tom Steyer dropped out. So the official field is down to Seven. He placed third in South Carolina, but didn't pick up any delegates. And uh, I respect him because he didn't see a path to the nomination, and he dropped out. Even though he's a billionaire, and he could have self-funded through the end of the campaign. If well, he chose. and that's
0: and that's the big thing was he banked basically his whole prospect of being the nominee on South Carolina.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, he got in the race, you know, further enough. Like South Carolina, when he came into the race, was fur far enough out that he was able to just do massive media buys out there and was hoping that that was going to be the uh, the one that he was going to get any sort of traction in. And he did not. So,
1: yeah. And he got third, you know, he he pulled into the top half of the field, but that's not really enough at this point. It
0: was, I mean, it wasn't enough to get a delegate. I mean, who knows? Maybe if he got a delegate, that would have changed.
1: (laughs) um. So, yeah, I think it is. It's it's probably a two man race, but I think that Super Tuesday is coming up this Tuesday. About a third of the delegates are up for grabs and it's it could shake up the race in a big way. And, uh, you know, Bloomberg is the wild card. I really don't like him, but he has spent half a billion dollars to this point. And he has risen in the polls, so we'll see what happens. I think that definitely the Klobuchar and Warren campaigns are on life support. They have not performed well really in any state. Klobuchar did okay in New Hampshire, but other than that, they are really scuffling, and Super Tuesday could be the last stand for both of them.
0: Yeah, I'm really uh, sad to see how Warren's been doing because she was my number one um but
1: yeah she was a strong number two for me but for whatever reason she's just not translating that into votes we'll see we'll see what happens on super tuesday we will see
0: well and and here's where it gets to is that i'm currently just uh scrolling through the uh 538 page where they you know do all the predictions for the States on super Tuesday and basically all of them are, it's basically Sanders and Biden who are, you know, trading off for who's the favorite on them and nobody else is really coming close on getting close as as a chance to beat them or Mm -hmm. to overtake them. The only notable ex- exception is Amy Klobuchar in Minnesota.
1: Well, yeah. But, yeah, that's her
0: home state. So. so I it's really starting to look like it is a race between Sanders and Biden. Again, I'm going to continue to take all of my analysis from 538 in their model <laughs> for who will... Who has chances of getting more than half of the pledged delegates? It is currently a 60%. They currently have it as a 60% chance that nobody will get a majority of the delegates. Uh, with Sanders at 26% and Biden at 14% and everybody else, whatever's left. So it's uh, there's a good chance we're going to be going into a contested convention which I'm not looking forward to, but and it's also great that it's in Milwaukee, which you know, I love as a city, but it doesn't even have a ho- enough hotel rooms to uh, host this type of event. <laughs> so there's going to be a lot of people bussing it from Chicago. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that's uh that's where we're at. We're not going to talk about the the debate that happened um no more talk about the candidates, at least at this section. So I think that's uh that's gonna wrap it up for us this week. Um unless Evan wants Thank to. Thank you say for listening. More. No, yeah. no, Bob. Um, yeah.
1: We we are winding it down. Thank you so much for listening as always. Um, we would love to hear your feedback. We have had our our email inbox has been empty for a few weeks. So if you have feedback on this or any episode, if you have topics you you'd like us to cover, guests that you'd like to To see on the podcast, please let us know. Please Mm -hmm. leave your ratings and reviews. Comment if you're seeing this on Facebook. Leave us a comment. Start a dialogue. Um, We really appreciate it.
0: Recommend us to your friends,
1: maybe? Your family, your enemies, anyone. Anyone.
0: It seems like uh, word of mouth may work for this one. But anyway uh i also like to thank anthony Hish for the music as always um but my name's joe hicks mine's evan kelly and we hope that you've been adequately informed